200 Women, The Listening Ground, brought to you by Westpac as part of the 200 anniversary celebrations. I'm Felicity Duffy, Head of Women's Markets for Westpac. Episode 8, Inspiration. Inspiring someone is the greatest gift you can give. It's not a tangible thing. You can be inspired to do many things. Ethical business, raising awareness, improving people's living and working conditions, or simply to love more. We hope you feel inspired listening. I think that as I look out into the world, tiny, uh, Mother Teresa said, not all of us can do great things, but we can do small things with great love. And I've seen the effect of just a few tiny gestures of kindness, like just emailing somebody back who is feeling really lonely in the middle of the night and saying, you know, hey, you're not alone. I'm here for you. And, you know, we're, we're listening and, and we feel your pain. And I think it's really exciting that if everybody would just spend a little bit of time trying to help a stranger every day, the world would be a much kinder place. I remember somebody once asked Nina Simone, what was her definition of freedom? And she said, no fear, no fear. So if you think to yourself, no fear of violence, no fear about where I'll sleep tonight, no fear about hunger and impoverishment, you know, no fear, all the crops will fail and no one will be there. Um, to me, to envisage a world where no one has fear you know, is to me, I, I, when she said that, that became kind of my vision, that's what we work for. I don't always feel brave, but I think there's that saying of Bob Marley's that you never know how strong you are until being strong is the only choice you have. And that, that resonates within me because sometimes I just know that something needs to be done. Um, so, uh, I take action and then I look back at it and go, oh, <laughs> I didn't realise how brave I was. And, and to me, that's what bravery is. I learned the hard way, you know, being on a shoot with like a beautiful, you know, black model and I would try to do her makeup and the photographer would say to me, tomorrow do her whole body because her face doesn't match her body. And so I started with my little bottle and I said, this is really stupid. There's got to be a foundation that matches the girl's skin and there wasn't. So that's how I really knew that there was, you know, something that needed to happen. And all the years in my company, when we would have the meetings, what to discontinue based on what sells, the, dark, the darkest foundations were not top sellers, but I refused to, to get rid of it. I did not want a woman to come to the counter and not have her color foundation. My restaurant, we, we offer, a, you know, a hot meal to the prostitutes collective on Friday afternoons. I don't know what it's like to be a sex worker and I have no judgment about what it's like to be a sex worker. That's a, a choice and sometimes not a choice, but one thing that I can do in my restaurant is offer a meal as sort of camaraderie, you know, and just say, I'm your neighbor. And that may start a conversation, you know? And so it's just like, it, to me, it's sort of all of these things that we do, my sister and I, often say that Coco's is not a restaurant like first and foremost it's a it's like the bat cave do you know what I mean like Bruce Wayne and what's his name boy wonder I don't know what's Robin's name what's his real name Robin yeah <laughs> I mean like they've got to be Bruce Wayne and have the you know the business out the front and what they do at nighttime and the bat cave behind the scenes is 
sort of the real deal. Like that's actually what we're doing. Like yes, food and service and booze and a great time is what keeps the cash flow going and pays the bills and pays staff. But really what we're doing behind the scenes is sort of more important to us. And we do it because it's got to be done. I don't think there is enough, um, you know, attention made to exactly, you know, the costings of products and why, you know, countries suffer such poverty. And so it's been so important for me working with, you know, retailers, whether it's doing like a shock collection, which I did, um, you know, not a shock collection, but a collection that sort of disrupted retail with Aldi. Um, for children's wear was making sure that I worked with manufacturers that had minimum, you know, working weeks, minimum wages, they had nurseries for women with children, they had medical insurance, they worked in safe buildings, you know, and the fundamental rights of life really when you work. Yeah, we've been working with artists in fashion since I think 2011. What I love about what we get with them is it's clearly such a hand-touched product. It doesn't feel, even though we do quite big numbers with them, it doesn't feel sort of mass produced in any way. It feels very real and, uh, and very loved, you know. For a little collection of maybe three or four bags, we might be working with 200 different people, most of them women, most of them working in their homes, in their communities, so nobody having to leave behind their families, um, nobody having to give up uh, you know, being a mum or a dad in any way, and uh, you know, making a difference to the individuals, making a difference to the families and the communities, and that's what I really love about it. Plus, I think the product's beautiful. I was um, out shopping with my family and mum got a call and just sort of screamed in the middle of the shop. And then three, so that was great, but three weeks to the day later they said actually they got it wrong and that it was terminal. Mm. It still hasn't sunk in. You know, I don't think it's really going to, until it really has to. Um, I think we all just sort of started suddenly realising that they were going to have to all cope without me in their life. You know, my mum, it's me that she lives with, you know, she doesn't live with anyone else. Um, you know, my grandma, just all the people that I really rely on and that really rely on me. I think we all just all of a sudden, you know, well, it's like all of us took a big deep breath in and then all kind of held it as we all kind of realised the impact this was going to have. Um, I'm still not sure we've let that breath out. <laughs> um, no, we went home from the hospital and we called everyone that needed to be called and told them. Um, I, you know, I actually don't remember what we did that night. I can't remember. I think, I don't think I kind of let out any emotion for a few days, but I think my mum did, but not around me. Um, I think we were both just trying to look after each other and protect each other. Um, but no, it was tough. And I think in a truly me fashion, I tried to, I guess, tried to do lots of other things to kind of, um, overcome that kind of grief. Even not, it's not that I didn't process it. I am always very aware of being aware of what's happening. Um, but I instantly, people kept asking me what my bucket list was. 
straight away, like in the interview that I had at the hospital where they told me that it was terminal, they said, you know, what is it that you want to do, you know, before you die? And that kind of really annoyed me. I don't know, I just, I don't, A, I don't have a bucket list, but there's lots of things that I would love to do, sure. You know, there's lots of places I'd love to see and people I'd love to meet. But I decided what I wanted to do was do what I've always planned to do with my life, but just do it really fast. I think one of the most difficult things that I've, I've come to accept is um, how I failed my daughter as a mother. Um, I lost my daughter in a drunk driving accident in 2010. And... Um, Unfortunately, at the time, I was um, still quite heavy into addiction, and I think um, having been so dependent on the drugs and the alcohol um, for so long in my life and as a parent, um, it made it difficult for me to be the mother that she deserved and the mother that my, my other child, for that matter, deserved. Um, and so, um, you know, I, I just try and live my life knowing that I'm just, you know, staying clean every day and you know, ensuring that I do things that would make her make her more proud of me, rather. It's a number of things, and I think for me, what I try and do every day is see how it is that I can use my life to better the lives of others. And it's just really a reminder to people that you can always pick yourself up, you know, no matter what it is that you've gone through in your life, that, you know, it's never too late for you to rewrite your life story. And that's what I've done, you know, having abused drugs and alcohol for over 17 years. Um, I'm celebrating my 60th of sobriety, actually, in, in a few days, on the 11th of August. And so it's really just... Um, you know, to remind people that, you know, you, you can still make better choices in life. I was traveling through the hills of Nepal about 21 years ago when I came across rows of villages which didn't have any girls from age 15 to 45. And I was a bit puzzled and I asked the men who were drinking tea, playing cards, where the girls were. And some were sheepish, some were hostile, but a few answered and they said, don't you know, they all are in Bombay. Now, Bombay was 1,400 kilometers away, and these villages were so remote that you had to walk two hours to the highway. And so I couldn't understand how so many girls and so many women could be in Bombay. But like a good journalist, I began to look for the answer, and the answer changed my life. Because I found that there was a smooth supply chain from the villages of Nepal to the brothels of Bombay. There was a local village procurer, there was a transporter, there was a corrupt border guard, there was a lodge keeper across the border in India who would keep these girls locked up for two or three days, beat them, uh, starve them, drug them, till their spirits were completely subjugated, hand them over to another set of transporters who would take them and sell them to pimps in the brothels of Bombay, Calcutta, Delhi. And the pimps would negotiate the price of these girls depending on their beauty. Now, by beauty, what do I mean? Fair skin was at a premium, being voluptuous was at a premium, do, being docile was at a premium, but also the younger, the better. So the youngest I've met was a seven-year-old. And then these girls were handed over to a set of uh, brothel managers who would lock up these girls for the next five years in small rooms with iron bars on the window and bring them out for eight or 10 customers every night. And these girls were between the ages of nine and 13. 
and behind the brothel managers were the money lenders, the landlords, finally the organized criminal networks and the Johns, you know, the customers or the clients. So it was like this whole chain and I saw people just being chewed up and spit out like a slave trade but it was invisible. It was in plain sight. We all knew red light districts existed. We knew women stood on the door, at the door. But we, we were just not, I didn't know it was so much like a system. And so I, at that time I was a journalist. So I said, okay, I'm going to tell the world about it. Because as a journalist, I'd covered war and famine and hunger. But I'd never seen this kind of deliberate exploitation of one human being by another, so intimately like a 50-year-old man on top of a 10-year-old girl. And, you know, people, pimps and brothel managers who were just sitting there making money off this girl. And she was just slowly getting consumed. And her body was developing diseases. She was getting abortions, you know. It was just hell. It was hell. So I said, I have to tell the story seeing the transformation in the lives of these ladies. Uh, we, I first meet them when they're slaves. So I first meet them when they're trapped in a hellish situation and I have the privilege of witnessing them from, from that point uh, to becoming a part, of a, a part of a family where they belong and are accepted for who they are and uh, who they can become. And we get, we get to watch them, uh, their posture changes, they start to stand upright, they look, they look us in the eye, they start to crack jokes, they, they start to believe we have a mantra that we say here at the workshop, uh, your life has a lot of value, my life has a lot of value, and you can see them start to believe that, that it's true, and this transformation takes place in front of our eyes, and what greater joy is there than, than to be able to witness that. Thank you for taking the time to listen. We hope it inspires your thinking today and maybe even your actions tomorrow. Westpac is very proud to have supported 200 Women, The Listening Ground. For the past 200 years, Westpac has continued to stand side by side with the women of this country. We believe wonderful things can happen when we come together, listen and learn from each other. We created Ruby Connection, our online networking platform for this very reason, and we invite you to join us at rubyconnection.com.au.